0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rin Vieth. I'm a host on the Human Rights Channel. Today, we have Lori Allen here to discuss her book, A History of False Hope, Investigative Commissions in Palestine. Thanks for coming on the show. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Rin. How did you come to this project? And could you tell us a little bit about your your work?
1: Sure. Um, So this book is kind of... I guess, a prequel to my first book, which was uh, called The Rise and Fall of Human Rights, Cynicism and Politics in Occupied Palestine. And that book was really an ethnography of Palestinian society and politics as it was constituted through and with the human rights system. And that story went back to about the 1980s. And throughout my work on that project in which I was inspired investigating how and why Palestinians were so invested in human rights, I started to wonder about kind of where this commitment came from and what were its roots. Um, And I started wondering about what these questions and dynamics and political debates about sovereignty and rights, collective and individual. What did they look like before the mushrooming of the human rights system as an industry, right? And you're probably familiar with Sam Wine's book, The Last Utopia, about, you know, he really says that the relevance of human rights came to the fore from the 1980s onwards. And that book is interesting, but I think it was incomplete geographically and historically um, because the relevance relevance is really much longer. And so... um, so, I was curious about the the prehistory to human rights in a way, and i 'm also very interested generally in the ways that evidence and claims to evidence work in politics i 'm interested in how you know proof in discourse and other material mediated forms functions and my earlier work that focused on the human rights scene. Um, was focused on how people tried to prove their suffering, right? How they um, tried to prove their conditions of political oppression. So I had these two sets of questions, and then somehow investigative commissions appeared to me as a kind of a vehicle for pursuing these kinds of questions through a much wider history. Um, you know, investigative commissions claim to be about evidence, to offer proof of po- a political scene. And in Palestine, they have been happening over and over throughout the past hundred years. So they gave me a a good way to kind of view change and continuity by looking at the same form over time to, to explore those questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about methods um, as the way that you brought together historical methodologies, anthropological methodologies, just different different ways of doing research together. I just I found I found the analysis really fascinating, um, as well as in a number of points you bring up. Um, you bring up some some really pointed and I think very very valuable and very of course very valid points about Palestinian histories and certain um, lack of, of consideration and, and certain attention that we should be paying. So yeah, I just I would I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your methods for this this project.
1: Okay, yeah, thanks for that question. It's um, something I really love thinking and talking about. Um, this book involved a tremendous amount of archival research across all kinds of libraries, um, throughout the Arabic press, uh, covering especially you know, from the first half of the 19th century until the present. And with the more recent commissions that I study with this book, I focus more on interviews and ethnographic fieldwork um, with people you know, who I had access to, who were involved in the more recent commissions. But I think because I'm not trained as a historian, I really bent over backwards to be thorough in my archival work. And I really kind of scoured over uh, about 100 years of history through every kind of source that I could find, you know, letters and personal papers, diaries, national archives, interviews of transcripts with commissioners, um, you know, Palestinians' testimonies commission reports, all the media coverage of them. So I just, I tried to find everything I could and the project was a real lesson in the kind of mysteries and challenges of anthropological historical research and archival research because, you know, unlike maybe a more traditional historian, I really wanted to understand what people thought they were doing with their engagement with commissions both commissioners as well as the Palestinians who were presenting to them. And so that meant that I had to go beyond the records of the commissions themselves, right? I had to go beyond the decisions that the commissions came to and the reports they issued in order to understand these actors who were involved in producing all of these um, commission reports, to understand them as people. So, you know, that's why I went through their diaries and their letters and, and everything I could find that allowed me to get a sense of what they were thinking they were doing and how invested they were in it. And so, of course, working on Palestine, comes with its own special bundle of challenges and delights. And, you know, people who work on Palestinian history are very aware of the difficulties that um, come with doing this kind of work since Palestinians, you know, they have no state, they have no national archive. And because the Palestinian experience itself is so scattered and disrupted by trauma and dislocation, you know, we have to look for traces of people's ideas and memories and experiences and thoughts with as broad and fine a lens as as we can. So, for this particular project, luckily, um, some of the Palestinians involved in, for example, the 1936 Peel Commission and the 1946 Anglo-American Commission, they were academics. Uh, they were intellectuals. So some of them wrote memoirs. They left their personal papers. Um, they had their own scholarly writings, and some of their thoughts about the commissions were available in these various in these various sources. Uh, But of course, there's then a bit of a class bias in these materials, because these folks were, um, you know, this was the materials of educated people who thought enough of themselves to leave written records, right? Um, But then what I was able to do, um, I think I did a pretty good job of getting a sense of the wider public from other people's descriptions of the commissions, um, photographs of the commissions that showed, you know, huge masses of people coming out in demonstrations in order to present their claims to the commissioners or pictures of whole families coming, you know, to to interview with the commissioner that that showed how invested they were in these interactions. Um, I found records of people who presented gifts with, you know, Woodrow Wilson's name kind of embroidered into Tapestry or something like that, uh, showing how much veneration they had for the U.S. at the time, or people who performed dramas to the commissioners to um, to dramatize their claims to sovereignty and to give their political messages. <clears throat> so I was I was looking at any kind of. Embodied interaction that people were having with the commissioners in order to interpret. I also relied a tremendous amount on Arabic newspapers, which carried a ton of coverage of these early commissions, which again showed to me how invested so many people in Palestine really were in these commissions' outcomes. Um, you know, there were newspaper articles, reports, uh, op eds every day, sometimes two a day, in the lead up to, for example, the arrival of the King Crane Commission in Palestine in 1919. And, you know, there are other scholars who have written about this commission, but none of them really attended to the Arabic newspapers. And so they missed out, really, I think, an important point about how wide Palestinian investment in these commissions was. It wasn't just an elite affair, right? So, so that's kind of the the, the challenges of finding Palestinian um, traces, right? But in contrast, there was more access to the direct words and thoughts of many of the Westerners involved in these commissions. Again, many of whom wrote their memoirs because they were public people or political people. So these are folks like judges, MPs, you know, a journalist, US senator, people like that, people who thought enough of themselves to, you know, put their words down for posterity. Um, But that was helpful for me because my analysis necessarily also included a focus on these people's attitudes and approaches to their fact-finding work. But again, as an anthropologist, I was concerned to understand them as people and what they thought behind their kind of professional public persona. And so I read people's letters and some of these folks exchanged letters with each other years after the commissions. And you got a sense of how important they thought their work on the commissions were, how important maybe they thought they themselves were. So all, you get that kind of, you know, feeling, that more human feeling from this kind of stuff. Um And similarly, a lot of these commissions, uh, we have records of the transcripts and, you know, from the dry paper and just the back and forth of people's words, it, it is actually very possible to get a sense of the tone and the tenor of how people were interacting Um, When you put those transcripts in the context of everything else you might know about a particular individual. Uh, So for example, there's a British MP Richard Crossman, who was a member of the Anglo American Commission in 1946. And he left his papers, diary, stuff like that. And he wrote to his wife about how tiresome he thought the Anglo-American committee proceedings were um, and how repetitive he thought that the Arabs were, right? Or there was an American judge, Joseph Hutchison, on the same committee who wrote in his own essays about liberalism and fairness. And so you you get a sense from triangulating these various sources what these people thought they were, they were on about, yeah? Um, and so with all of these historical materials, I tried to bring out Uh, I tried to bring an anthropological attention to these interpersonal interactions, to the way that people tried to convey the urgency of their claims, um, how they tried to express their hopes and their commitments to these different liberal values that I write about. And so I teased out of these linguistic traces their emotional commitments. Yeah. Um, and in the end I found it to be a tremendously fun, uh, exercise, you know, you become part detective, maybe part psychologist, um, part sort of literary analyst. Yeah. So yeah, I just had a, a great deal of fun experimenting with all of these new methods.
0: I, I, I know you said that, you know, you had, you had hoped that you had done this and I think absolutely. I mean, it's, um, this is a wonderfully, um, I don't know, dense, well-researched, heavily textured, wonderful, wonderful book. Um, so I, I realize we've been talking sort of about how you how you did this project, and not necessarily about it itself. And so. I I realize, you know, you you touched on this a little bit, but why why the decision to focus on commissions, um, particularly in the context of of Palestine um, and in asking about commissions? I'm also thinking about your claim that commissions arbitrate international law, um, which I was really compelled by um, thinking about um, thinking about the role of of commissions in international law. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your decisions there.
1: Okay, thank you. So you froze a little bit there, but I think your question was um, sort of why commissions and what's the inter- interaction of commissions in international law? Is that the, the basic question? Yeah, so commissions are really a fascinating lens onto the performative and political dimensions of liberalism and international law. Right, They're not strictly legal proceedings, but they draw on legal frameworks, uh, especially international human rights and humanitarian law. Um, in the more recent UN commissions, international human rights and humanitarian law are often part of the terms of reference of the commissions. In addition, these commissions are often organized by and accountable to the institutions of liberal internationalism and international law. So, you know, the League of Nations, the United Nations, and what they do is put the norms and values of liberalism, international law, liberal internationalism really on display. Right, because in their mission statements, in their terms of reference, in the people who are involved—you know, lawyers, judges, people who are self-proclaimed liberals and and upholders of the law—in um, the debates and controversies about the commissions, all of these kinds of um, discourses and interactions really put on display public conversations about the values and principles of international law and where we they put on to dis- they put on display in these forums um how people are interacting with international law from different subject positions, right? As Palestinians, stateless Palestinians, making claims on international bodies, we can see the kinds of values that were important to them. As commissioners who are trying to steer the proceedings in a particular way, we can see how they are looking for their um, interlocutors to perform their liberal respect of legal values in a particular way. So it's it's really a place where international law comes to life. Um, And of course, these commissions do this in different ways in different historical periods, right? So earlier commissions I look at, um, like the first one, the King Crane Commission was trying to organize a new world order after the end of, of empire, the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. And so international legal ideas there were focused on producing ethnically homogenous uh, nation states in promoting religious tolerance, for example, um, and democracy. But then later commissions are more specifically about human rights and humanitarian law. So, So through commissions, because it's this relatively stable form over time, you can also trace, as I said earlier, you can trace changes and and things that are consistent in international law over time. And again, because commissions are public and debated in public, There's an element of spectacle or at least performativity, right? People are performing their liberal stances for wide audiences. And so it gives me as an analyst another view onto how people are thinking about a wide range of issues and and values, you know, violence, the need for fairness and justice, what that means to them, Uh, civilization and sovereignty, how people assess, um, how commissioners assess the worthiness to sovereignty of Palestinians, all of that is put into action in these commissions. Um, and you see the kinds of speeches to the international community, which is supposedly you know, the source and arbiter of international law uh, that Palestinians expressed in their testimonials to the commission. So they're just an incredibly really rich resource, re- resource for, for understanding these kinds of issues.
0: So this um, this makes me think a little bit just with your, your points about liberalism. In the introduction, you bring up liberalism as an embodied ideology, and this thread continues throughout the book. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the importance of the consideration of liberalism in this way for this particular project.
1: Yeah. So, you know, obviously, liberalism is this vast subject with reams and reams of, of scholarship on it. But most people really study liberalism through its texts, right? The writings of known liberals like, you know, say, John Locke or other canonical figures. And instead, I tried to understand liberalism of the everyday, you know, kind of typical anthropological approach is wanting to understand um, how these kinds of ideas and values become part of people's subjectivities, Uh, So I I called it a study of lived liberalism, by which I mean how people interact with the institutions and the values of liberalism, how those institutions and values demand certain kinds of behaviors, how they shape certain kinds of subjects, shape how they live, what they believe, how they interpret and evaluate others, right? Um, Even how they are supposed to feel and comport themselves. So liberalism in my reading is manifest in all of those in that kind of holistic um, lived sense, right? It's not just texts and ideas and the people who write them. It's embodied. So I attended to things like how, you know, the liberals of the Anglo-American committee assess people representing the Palestinian position. And as I show, you know, these people found that uh, they believed that the Arabs were not showing enough sympathy for the Jews, right? Because the Arabs didn't think that the horrible problems left after the European Holocaust should be solved on their non-European lands at their non-European expense. But because Arabs, and in this case, people speaking on behalf of Palestinian sovereignty, did not um, put sympathy for the Jewish people, Problem and the problem of Jewish refugees and displaced people ahead of their own concerns, these committee members could claim that these Arabs were basically insufficiently sympathetic, insufficiently liberal. And so I argue that sympathy for the suffering of the Jews in this time period became a marker of the good liberal after World War II. And so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm analyzing people's assessments of other people's comportments and emotions and emotional expressions. And I think about this, I think about liberalism as an ideology in a kind of Gramscian sense and, and drawing on people like Bourdieu. You know, ideology um, is part of how people get sucked into or even consent to their own domination, it's not just a set of ideas, right, or a set of precepts. It's a way of being physically, emotionally, a, a habitus in Bourdieu's terms. And so I tried to attend to all of those kinds of physically lived ways that liberalism was functioning throughout these commissions with the resources that I had.
0: So, that also, um, I just, and, and thinking about liberalism as well, I'm thinking about your discussion of international bodies like the United Nations, like the League of Nations. And throughout this, this wonderful book, um, there's significant consideration about the role of the United Nations, um, in particular, these processes of legitimization. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the UN or perhaps as well the League of Nations, depending on, on how much history you'd like to cover. Um, and, and the process of of thinking about, um, I don't know, and, and thinking about all these really important, um, important processes, I guess, and, and also thinking about, you know, international law and legitimization and, and all of that.
1: Yeah, thanks. So, okay, so the League of Nations and the United Nations are, you know, supreme organizations of liberal institutionalism, liberal internationalism, global legalism, right? These are the ideas that relations between states um, can be and should be organized and kept peaceful through legal agreements to uphold, you know, rule-based norms, promote liberal democracy, and, and so on. You know, this... They are underpinned, these organizations, by a belief that international law can ameliorate global problems, can facilitate international interactions and and uphold peace. And these stances often come with a faith in law and law's institutions, um, a faith that law can legitimize political stances and claims, that legitimate political stances and claims have to be underwritten by law. So already... I'm I'm trying to give a sense of what I think these organizations have done to promote themselves as legitimizers of particular political formulations, right? And I think that the UN and especially uh, the General Assembly and other human rights bodies have become a space for the authorization of rights claims um, because the UN is supposedly the embodiment of these internationally agreed norms, right? And I think that the legitimizing power of the UN carries even a moral valence. Um, You know, these these principles, they embody ethical precepts, the the principles of international law that the UN propounds, they really embody ethical precepts about humanity, about violence and peace, about good conduct, human dignity, right? These are these are things that are at the root of shared ideas about what it is to have human goodness and a common human good, really, at its most, in its most general terms. And, and so the UN has become a place that claims to give a legitimate voice to those values and, and precepts, right? I think the UN does this in a different way from how the League of Nations functioned. So, my book starts in 1919, just before, in the period when the League of Nations is about to be established to supposedly maintain world peace, right? Um, and the King Crane Committee, the first commission I examined, came to Palestine with the mission of finding out what the Arabs of the post-Ottoman uh, lands wanted, uh, who they wanted to be ruled by as a mandate under the League of Nations, and the League was an institution that proclaimed to be uh, a, a new, to be introducing a new era of national sovereignty and and independence even for smaller nations but in many ways still worked with the colonial mentality right the western powers of the league were there they claimed to be helping the backwards nations develop right what they claimed to be doing was as a sacred trust of civilization Um, so so the palestinians who were coming to sort of make their claims to the League of Nations through the King Crane Committee, Um, they wanted independent sovereignty and no European or American tutor because, as some of them recognized, any power that came wouldn't leave without a fight. But getting back to your question, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Arabs of Palestine, who wanted an independent, multi-faith, constitutional democracy or or monarchy, um, what they wanted was a new form of polity that they thought the League of Nations could grant and enforce, right? As a body that could actually influence how they would be governed um, and the people governing them. So I never really thought of the League of Nations as a body for legitimizing anything other than continued colonial domination of non-Western peoples. Getting back to your actual question about how these institutions function as legitimizing forces. Um Just to say, there there are people who have, have more nuanced views of this in some ways. So someone like Natasha Wheatley, a historian, she wrote this fantastic article that argues that the mandate system was more than just a fig leaf for empire. She looks at how the kind of culture of petition writing to the League of Nations among Arabs and Jews in the period of the 20s and 30s, Um, gives an insight into how regular people were engaging with legal argumentation through and against the League. And she makes a really interesting observation that she shows that initially the Arab petition writers thought that international law through the League of Nations could constrain British power, Britain being the, the mandate that was governing Palestine after 1923. But as time wore on, Natasha Wheatley says... These petition writers were seeing that there was no constraint on British power, and they started reformulating their claims to to, to, to show that their rights, their individual and especially national rights, were not... Um, were independent of the League of Nations. The League of Nations was not the source of their rights, right? So they stopped believing in and arguing from the mandate as an authoritative text. So it's really interesting to see how authority is asserted and contested differently over time through these institutions and what kinds of legitimizing power people thought they had at different times, yeah? Yeah. But as for the United Nations, I think it has represented, it symbolized really a kind of a moral force, a moral legitimizing force as the body that represents the international community, yeah? And all of its supposedly agreed norms, values, standards of political behavior. So... It has the power to legitimize claims and narratives on this global scale. And I think this is why there's so much effort by Israel and Zionists to defame the UN, to call into question its legitimacy and its fairness, because the UN has been a forum in which Palestinian rights can be articulated. Um, It's a forum in which Palestinian rights can, excuse me, be amplified and confirmed within an international legal framework. So if I can just go on for another minute or so, I want to get back to this question of legitimization by focusing on one of my favorite chapters of the book, which is about the UN Special Committee for the Investigation of Israeli Practices in Occupied Palestinian Territories, or some version of those words, which I just call the Special Committee for short. And This special committee which has been reporting on Israel's occupation since 1969, provides a really great lens onto a continuous arc of UN interaction with the so-called problem of Palestine and how Palestinians have come to the UN to legitimize their political claims. So this special committee was established by the UN General Assembly, Um, which has been a forum since about the 1960s that has represented a broader demographic of states um, and a place where people have come to articulate anti-colonial, anti-racist, anti-apartheid values and and political stances. And so the records of this special committee coming out of the, the UN General Assembly are really fascinating for what they reveal about how people have made their rights claims and how UN representatives have um, seen themselves as legitimizers and amplifiers of Palestinians' political claims in the context of, of this particular special committee. And what's also amazing is how state representatives in the General Assembly have debated those claims um, and sometimes even debated what they're doing in the General Assembly. You know, even from within the General Assembly, some have recognized that they were just a talking shop or they worried that they were just a talking shop. So, you know, they questioned, what are we doing here? How can we legitimize anything given that we lack enforcement capacities? This was a real question. Um, And so what's particularly fascinating is how the question of Palestine and Palestinians, you know, persistent unfreedom and Israel's systematic abuse of Palestinian rights, individual and collective rights itself became talked about as a legitimizing factor for the UN. Or rather, it's that people were recognizing that since individual and human and collective political rights of Palestinians were not being upheld, because these rights, which are enshrined in so many UN resolutions, because those rights have not been upheld, that itself, that condition itself, calls into question the legitimacy of the UN. So it's this question, this question of legitimizing force of the UN is really quite complex, right? It's a field for, you know, the UN has really become a field, the parts of the UN that I look. At, I don't want to overgeneralize. Is a field for airing and exchanging claims to legitimacy across many vectors, and so that's a lot of what my book was trying to do: is trace how people called on the UN in different forms to legitimize their claims.
0: Thank you so much for that really thoughtful response. Um, that that leads me to my next question, actually, um, quite <laughs> quite wonderfully, I think. Um, so throughout the book. You discuss how, um, as you write, international law offers a venue for the expression and confirmation of, pa- of the Palestinian perspective. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to this, because um, to me, this this consideration of international law as a venue for you know the expression of of a particular perspective seems like. Um, a really wonderful way to consider how people engage with law and this incredibly anthropological approach um, to thinking about about this broader issue.
1: Thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, law is supposed to be a neutral language and legal forums forums are supposed to be uh, politically objective and neutral. But as anyone who looks at how law actually functions um, understands, Law is essentially a language, right? It's a form of debate. It's a method of claim making. And the institutions of law are forums for those debates. And I think it's partly because Palestinians have no recognized national state as their international representative. They have called on the UN as a forum for representing them right? Because the UN does offer a voice. It's a place to speak and be heard. And within the UN, the body of resolutions and international law that is built up over the years reflects many Palestinian demands. um, And of course, that of many other downtrodden and unfree people. And the fact is that international law confirms Palestinians' rights, full stop, right? For example, UN resolutions 194, 242, these are the most cited confirmations of Palestinian political rights. 242 refers to the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war. It acknowledges the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the um, the political independence of every state in the region. And resolution 194 is the one that affirms that refugees should be able to return home. Now, of course, today, millions of Palestinians living in various forms of exile uh, as refugees and millions of people living under Israeli military occupation show that these resolutions have not been upheld. But <clears throat> the point is that those resolutions and many other Resolutions um, and doctrines of international law, like human rights documents, humanitarian law, confirms the rights that people should live with everywhere and anywhere that they um, these are rights that should be protected, that uh, that would protect Palestinians living under occupation and even as uh, third-class citizens living in Israel. So the point is that the principles and values of international law express Palestinian claims. And Palestinians use that language to make their claims and condemn Israeli violations of their rights. Um, They use that language to condemn Israel's abuses of every liberal principle enshrined in those laws, right? The institutions of international law, the UN, all the bodies, organizations, the forums, the special days, the reports, the investigative committees, this whole mass of activity and discourse are all frameworks in which Palestinians and those who advocate for their rights and political claims can speak to and reaffirm those claims um, and be heard. Those forums amplify and legitimize their claims of course, what they do not do is fulfill those claims or actually protect their rights on the ground.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, so to to bring us to the end of your, your book, at the end, um, you, you mentioned that, um, as, as you write, international law has been an anti-revolutionary pacifying force um, with, within the context of Palestine. And I would love to hear you speak a little bit to the tension between hope um, in the title of your book and some of the realities of international law, um, because this seems to be a major, um, a major part of the book, a major source of tension. And I was also just so compelled by the idea of international law as an anti-revolutionary pacifying force that just, I I don't know, it just, it hit me in the gut.
1: (laughs) Good. That's what every writer likes to hear. Um, Yeah. So, Okay, so starting with hope, part of what I try to do is show how successive innovations in international law have generated new reasons for Palestinians to have hope in the international community, to have hope that international law will in fact constrain Israeli violence and Israeli control over their lives, you know, from commissions that have come to implement international law to settle questions of of sovereignty earlier on to commissions that were generated by people in uh, what was then called the third world who recognized what colonialism and racism meant and sought to end it. And now, you know, there's renewed hope maybe in the International Criminal Court that it can actually hold perpetrators accountable for their crimes against humanity, war crimes. And so each new season of international law generates springs of hope, right? And what I am trying to show in this book is that it's very obvious that all of those hopes have been serially disappointed. So, part of my question was, you know, so why do people keep coming back to these forums? Why do they keep investing hope in international law? And part of the answer is because it keeps generating these new forums, these new languages, these new sources of hope. And when people are living in conditions without meaningful political representation, or when the international community is the kind of key audience for political claim-making, it makes sense to have hope in those forums. So I don't mean to dismiss or deride any actions that people have taken because it seems reasonable, right? International law should uphold Palestinian rights. It just doesn't get implemented. But where I get critical is in thinking about what has not been done While all of these people are investing all of this time and energy and hope in international law that may be only set up to disappoint them, what else needs to be done for Palestinian liberation? Now, I don't think anyone really thinks that international law can solve a political problem. People aren't dumb. They recognize that politics functions in everything, especially everything having to do with Palestine. However, what I observed in my analysis over this hundred years of Palestinian engagement with international law and advocates of Palestinian freedom and independence is there is, in fact, a kind of sense sometimes that just achieving a win in international law, just getting another resolution that confirms Palestinian rights, just getting another investigative commission to go and record the damage and violence and death and suffering that Israel has wielded in Palestinian lives, that in and of itself is a win. But of course, it isn't. It isn't win enough, right? It's not win enough to actually improve people's lives or lead to a process that could achieve actual structural change that would allow Palestinians and Israelis to live um, meaningfully peaceful lives in the region, yeah? And so I guess my... When I say I'm throwing down the gauntlet, it's kind of recognizing that I'm making a pretty strong claim that this whole system is in a way an obfuscation of what really needs to happen for political change to happen. And what really needs to happen is political mobilization and unity and political will among the powers that be that have the actual resources and authority to create change on the ground.
0: Well, I just want to say thank you so so much for your time today and for speaking with me across uh, so many time zones. And I know you're having some some tech hiccups. Um, thank you for speaking with me about your fantastic, heavily textured, exceptionally researched book. Um, and before we close, would you like to let listeners know um, about other projects you're working on, um, as well as where they might uh, where they might be able to find the rest of your your work?
1: Thanks, Rin, And thank you for for your questions um, and for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, What I'm working on now is a non-academic book about how people have moved away from Zionism so i'm interested in collecting the stories and the journeys of people who have reevaluated ethically and politically their commitments to zionism and and what's moved them um that's just in its very early stages and i'm i'm quite interested in seeing how it turns out and i hope other people will be too uh in terms of where people can find other stuff um i don't know google my university website is so as i have a personal website, probably. Um, Yeah. So if anyone's interested, they can
0: email me too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. And have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Rin. You too.